A quick note before we get started, we talk about the death of a child in this episode. Until you live with somebody who is fighting to breathe, what that basically means is they're choking. People don't really understand. This is Rosamund Adu Kisidebra. She lives in South London and gave this interview in 2021 to the European Public Health Alliance. She's talking about her daughter, Ella Roberta. We didn't know what was triggering off her asthma all the time. We just did not know. You'd be sitting down with her and suddenly out of the blue, she would start coughing for no rhyme or reason. Starting when she was six years old, Ella suffered from severe asthma, attacks that sent her to the hospital 28 times in 28 months. I had to train myself to resuscitate her. Ella would frequently stop breathing. Rosamund put a camera in Ella's room so that when the attacks happened in the middle of the night, she could wake up and help her. But many times, Ella's asthma attacks took her to the emergency room or ICU. We were looking for a medical cause. Ella was a curious child who loved sports, music, and science. She was frequently asking questions to understand what was wrong with her. One of the things she said to the doctor, is there anybody else who has asthma as bad as me? And he said to her, oh my goodness me, no, absolutely not. The doctor told Ella that one day she'd be in the medical books because her case was that bad and that hard to understand. I promised her that I would do everything to find out why she had suddenly become ill. Ella passed away in February 2011, three weeks after her ninth birthday. I have had to learn to live with that as long as I have left, she's not going to be with me. And that's really, really hard. We are always going to have Christmas. We are always going to have her birthday. And we're always going to have the anniversary of her death. And her siblings, on Saturday, they will turn 12. And there will be a moment when they will say those words, I expect it, Mum, I wish she was here. The road to figuring out the cause of Ella's death was not easy. So on her death certificate, it had respiratory failure. It said her triggers were due to something in the air. I mean, where do you start with that? You won't be surprised that no one really wanted to touch our case. But Rosamund was dedicated to getting an answer, not only for Ella, but other kids. I wasn't going to find out by myself. So every opportunity I got, I spoke to media. So if you look at the early clippings about her death, it will say mystery, because we actually didn't know. My name is Stephen Holgate. Uh, I'm a medical research council clinical professor at the University of Southampton. Dr. Stephen Holgate happened upon an article about Ella's case seven years after her death. Because I'd been researching into air pollution and its mechanisms for a number of years, including collaborations with colleagues in the United States, particularly at the Environmental Protection Agency, I thought I might be able to help in trying to 
shed some light on what happened to Ella because on reading the story that her mother, Rosamond, produced for the newspaper, it was clear that there was an environmental cause for Ella's asthma. Dr. Holgate has led a distinguished career, receiving many prestigious recognitions for his work, work that has led to more than 1,000 peer-reviewed publications, a staggering number in the research community. He's also become a leading expert and champion for practical air pollution solutions. My area of interest is in asthma and allergic diseases. Though over the last 15 or 20 years or so, I've become involved in air pollution research as well. I've had quite an interest in air pollution for a number of years and was in fact the founding chair of our government's air pollution committee, the Committee on the Medical Effects of Air Pollutants. When Dr. Holgate read about Ella, it seemed obvious to him that environmental factors had likely played a role in her chronic asthma. So he reached out to Rosamond and started working with her lawyers to figure out why. With such a dramatic series of expressions of her asthma, the hospital notes were very substantial. Ella was admitted to six different hospitals across London. All of them were linked to major teaching hospitals, and she had the highest quality of care, I think, that anyone could reasonably expect. Uh, but obviously, she was in a desperate situation. I had access to her post-mortem material. I also obviously went through all the pathological data from her bronchoscopies and other data that she had. And it was quite clear that she had very damaged airways with a lot of airway wall remodeling, that the lining cells of her airways were largely destroyed and replaced by mucus secreting cells. He explains how the throat can produce these mucus secreting cells along the walls as a way to mitigate against the damage being done when inhaling chemical pollutants. The cells help protect the lungs, but can cause additional blocking when someone is having an asthma attack and their throat is constricting. And there is another interesting clue to Ella's asthma. It appeared most frequently during the fall and winter months. There were two obvious things that one should try and look for with that seasonal pattern emerging. Firstly, uh, infection, and quite often virus infections in children in the autumn and in the winter months cause quite serious asthma. She had many, many tests looking for infectious agents, including viruses, bacteria, fungi. None of these came up with anything that could suggest that there was a primary infectious cause. The second was allergen exposure. Well, we know that uh, she was allergic, as most young children with asthma are, and that she had allergies to common breathed allergens, but not the ones that cause severe asthma in the winter and fall months, namely not to dust mites, not to cats, not to fungi or other perennial allergens. She was only allergic to grass pollen. And on looking at her medical records, she had very few attacks across the summer months when the grass pollen was highest. And it was obviously not possible to link pollen-related allergy to her serious attacks. So that was really leaving us just one more option, really, which was chemical irritation of the airways caused by air pollution. 
After many years of difficult legal and medical work, and nearly 10 years after her passing, Ella's official cause of death was changed from a general respiratory failure to include air pollution. This happened in December 2020. This was the first time that air pollution had appeared on a death certificate as a cause of death. Rosamond and her family live in a part of southeast London where air pollution monitoring regularly shows extremely high levels of pollutants. They live about 80 feet from the South Circular, one of the busiest roads in the UK. As it so happened, there was a government air pollution monitoring site about one mile from where they lived. And the local transportation authority was also measuring air pollution near their home, because they were changing their bus route. The air pollution monitoring in and around her neighborhood showed illegal levels of nitrogen dioxide and on occasion uh, particulates. And when one superimposed the air pollution data onto when she was having these attacks, we could see a clear relationship that when the air pollution was worse in London, where she lived, then her attacks were also worse. So she was exposed to these illegal levels of air pollution for prolonged periods of her young life. And uh, the association between those and the episodes that she was experiencing in the winter and fall months helped me come to the conclusion that she had air pollution as a major trigger of her asthma. In 2011, when she did die, there was the highest level of air pollution in London for about four years. So this was a particularly bad time. People can be genetically predisposed to asthma, like Ella's family. But environmental factors can also play a role. It's a complex disease that is typically treatable. But because of Dr. Holgate's lifelong work on the subject, an analysis of Ella's medical records, he was confident enough to bring the results before the court. Of course, it's, it's never possible to absolutely prove that air pollution caused Ella's death. But what we had with her were these 26 hospital admissions, uh, which is not a trivial number when you think of a little girl of nine years of age and the dramatic way in which she died. And I think because of my own research, interested in the role of the epithelium in asthma and how it can orchestrate not only some of the chronic inflammatory reactions in the lung, but also the remodeling of the airways. It was that background in the science of the area that enabled me to make this causal link much more likely. Um, again, there will always be question marks over it. But I think the sort of evidence is more likely than not. And when the uh, coroner came to his conclusions, uh, that was the way he framed this, that air pollution was more likely than not a major contributor to the origin progression of Ella's asthma and her eventual death from it. My name is Kristen Eulenbrock, and from the Institute for Science and Policy, this is Clearing the Air, the Hazy Future of Our Skies, an eight-part series about the state of air in Colorado and how we are navigating this complex problem that knows no borders 
even globally. In December 2020, Ella Roberta Kissy Debra became the first person in the world to have air pollution appear on her death certificate. Her story gained global attention and has sparked interest in identifying other cases that link air pollution to a person's untimely death. But in order to change perceptions and policy, statistics and facts will only get you so far. People became really interested because there was a human story behind this. That really is the power of this particular an unfortunate case is that there's a real human being, a young child who used to play football, played music instruments, was top of a class at school, was a lively little five and six-year-old before she developed this and died. Since then, other countries are looking more closely at potential cases. For example, during the severe Canadian wildfires earlier this summer, a young boy died of an asthma attack, and the coroner's office is investigating the linkage to the smoke. But Ella's case is more than a news story, and many hope it will serve as a catalyst for change. The coroner who completed the second autopsy into Ella's death also produced a Prevention of Future Deaths report, which UK coroners do when there are lessons to be learned from a person's death and actions to be taken. There were three things that he listed. The first is that the United Kingdom, and hopefully other parts of the world, should adhere to the legal limits that are set for air quality in the environment. Dr. Holgate is referring to the World Health Organization's limits of various air pollutants. The WHO estimates that in 2019, 99% of the world lived in places where air quality guidelines were not met. And an estimated 4.2 million premature deaths are associated with outdoor air pollution each year. The second thing was that there should be greater information for the wider public on what levels of air pollution people are exposed to. Information is power. And if people don't know what they're exposed to, how can people really know uh, to exert influence over change? The third thing he said was that the health professions needed to know more about air pollution. He makes the point that when Ella was admitted to some of the best hospitals in the UK, air pollution was never mentioned as a potential trigger for her asthma. He hopes that will change, and he and others are looking to policymakers to do something. So Ella's law basically is to try and get those three things into law through the Houses of Parliament. Ten years since the tragic death of nine-year-old Ella Roberta, the first person ever to have air pollution listed on her death certificate. Yesterday's Environmental Improvement Plan pledges to improve air quality, but the government's targets of a 2040, that's a whole generation away. I don't think that's fast enough, and neither does Ella's mum, Rosamond Adu Kissy-Deborah. This is Caroline Lucas, a member of Parliament in the UK. 
She's speaking to Prime Minister Sunak during a debate about Ella's law in December 2022. The arguments for passing Ella's law are that it would make breathing clean air a human right, setting lower levels of PM2.5, which are tiny particulates that can embed deep in your lungs, therefore raising the attention and prioritization of air pollution. In a way, this is out of sight, out of mind, but if actually the information was made available, then maybe the public would be more aware and therefore put pressure on local authorities and on central government for change. We need uh, social and, and behavioural sciences to come in to see what we need to do as a society to create the incentives to be able to create the behaviours that are going to drive down pollution. We need to have grown-up conversations with the industry because obviously meeting the carbon uh, targets in all of our countries, which our governments are set to try and do, we're going to drive down air pollution. So I'd like to see air pollution and climate uh, mitigation policies joined up rather than be developed in parallel. Dr. Holgate also believes that the greater medical community needs to be more engaged on this issue. I think when you have events like that, just like we have pandemics, it forces change in the way that we behave. And certainly since COVID-19, I think the medical and health authorities are changing in different ways. Whether they're changing fast enough, I don't know. We can debate that. But they are changing as a result of that. I think we need to think as air pollution as a health emergency. After all, it's the greatest environmental risk to human health. So why shouldn't we treat this as an emergency? As of the writing of this story in September 2023, Ella's Law, technically known as a Clean Air Human Rights Bill, has passed the House of Lords and is currently in the House of Commons. Out of 650 members of parliament, it has received 63 signatures showing support. The next step is a debate on the general principles of the bill, which is scheduled for December 15th, 2023. From South London to Metro Denver, Traffic emissions are a leading contributor to air pollution in many places. Often those living within a quarter mile or so of a busy road are at the greatest risk. And then there are additional health impacts that come from noise, stress, and poor socioeconomic conditions. There was a book published in 2020 by Elsevier called Traffic-Related Air Pollution with dozens of research contributors. It includes many chapters discussing the health, social, economic, and policy impacts of traffic-related air pollution. But there are two sentences that caught my attention. They are, currently, there is no known safe lower limit for exposure to air pollution under which adverse health effects would not be observed. The science, therefore, seems to be outpacing the legislation and current air quality guideline values and standards. The use of science to inform decisions that then drive policy change often follows a circuitous path. But sometimes there are clear threads between the problem and the solution. 
catalytic converter is a great example of that. That's a device that you wouldn't put on a car for any other reason than to clean up the air pollution. And so there was really no incentive for in industry to do it until they were required to do so under the Clean Air Act. This is Jana Milford, a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder and a longtime air quality control commissioner. We met her in episode two. Early in Jana's career, she worked for Congress on amendments to the Clean Air Act. At the time, almost all of the emphasis in trying to reduce ozone levels was focused on controlling volatile organic compound emissions. But the science was showing that in a lot of places, if you tackled nitrogen oxides, that would be more effective at reducing ozone than focusing exclusively on VOCs. Jana is referencing some of the early research that was done in California about where the air pollution was coming from that formed that infamous smog. Where were those nitrogen oxides coming from? It was motor vehicles, and there was a challenge in particular that had been experienced in the 1970s and early 80s in simultaneously reducing volatile organic compounds, carbon monoxide, and nitrogen oxides. It turns out that just from a technical perspective, it's hard to do it all at once. The catalytic converter, the three-way catalyst, was the solution to that. But it was still expensive, and lots of people had challenges in making those catalysts work in, the, in their vehicles. In essence, a catalytic converter is part of the exhaust system that creates a chemical reaction by exposing the fumes to metals, making what comes out of the tailpipe less harmful. The EPA estimates that today's passenger vehicles are 98 to 99 percent cleaner for most tailpipe pollutants compared to the 1960s. One reason is that small but important piece of technology, the catalytic converter, that was driven by U.S. federal regulation on the auto industry decades ago. In 1970, when Congress passed the Clean Air Act, it set the standard to reduce automobile emissions by 90% by 1975 for new cars, specifically for hydrocarbons, carbon monoxide, and nitrogen oxide, the compounds that form ozone. This drove automakers to find a solution. There were a number of important improvements to address a vehicle's emissions, like switching to unleaded fuel, but the catalytic converter ended up being a critical component. The final piece of all of this is enforcement. So emissions testing is one way that Colorado non-attainment areas, like the Front Range, seek to limit pollution from vehicles. Kate, tell me, what are we going to do? Um, we are going to get my emissions retested. I drive a 2004 Subaru Forester and older cars in the Denver metro area have to pass an emissions test in order to be registered and driven. I'm at an Air Care Colorado station with my colleague, Kate Long. Okay, it says online that all gasoline-powered vehicles require emissions inspection once they're over seven years old. So my car's about 19 years old. Definitely needed. Like, I wasn't close to the limit when I did it last time, so I think I'll be okay. Stop at the gate. All right, we're pulling up. It's 5 p.m. on a hot September Tuesday, and we're cutting it close to when the emissions site closes. There are three open bays with a few cars lined up at each. 
It didn't take very long last time. Maybe half an hour. We should have got snacks. I have some Cheez-Its. You have some Cheez-Its? Something to drink? <laughs> I have water. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Kate's not worried about failing her emissions test. But if someone were to not pass, they would need to fix whatever was the issue before they were able to register their car. The museum's going to buy me a car if I fail. <laughs> I did willingly volunteer for this. <laughs> it's on the record. <laughs> One of the tools that the government uses to change behavior is regulation and enforcement. And there is a frequent debate about whether government regulation is either helping or hurting innovation or business. The auto industry is a prime example. But some argue that when you look back on the evolution of our automobile industry, they have frequently met the challenge of regulatory requirements, both with their business model and technology, from seatbelts and airbag laws to electric cars. Time after time after time, we see industry engineers step up and they figure out a solution and implement it. And shortly, the problem has been solved, or if not solved completely, they've gone a long ways towards doing so. So we just see that kind of innovation, back and forth interplay with regulation all the time in this arena. And while the auto industry has faced ups and downs, it has continued to grow. There are more cars on the roads today than there ever have been in history. About 358 million vehicles in the U.S. alone, which is the most per capita of any country. And when regulation drives industries to change, there can be ripple effects around the world. Those investments that were made in the United States and the requirements for those controls in the United States really provided leadership and a path forward for China to step up its game and implement similar types of controls. So that's one example where U.S. technology development has applications in those other countries. Just in the arena of conventional air pollution, hazardous air pollution, some of the, the approaches that we use for mercury and for sulfur dioxide have really been developed in other countries, and, and we've adapted them and, and utilized them here. Using policy levers to drive change is common, whether that be carrots or sticks, incentives or fines. But with any regulatory efforts, officials also have to weigh the costs to health, to the economy, to jobs. For Jana, the key to finding the right solution or balance in the trade-offs is about hearing from people directly impacted. When we have contentious issues before the commission, we often have a lot of public comment, a lot of people speaking from the heart about the impacts on their families. And it comes from both directions. From some people's perspective, it's an impact of poor air quality on their children who maybe have asthma or have other consequences of, of air pollution. And then we also hear from people who come work in the industry, the oil and gas industry, for example, and are concerned about impacts on their jobs. And so listening to both sides and compelling stories on both sides is, I think, a really important responsibility for the commissioners, but also something that does make a difference. And she also thinks 
that having a diversity of perspectives is key to designing good policy. I start from the conviction that our statutory authority, both the Clean Air Act and Colorado's air quality statutes, are charging the Air Quality Control Commission with taking a precautionary approach and putting first and foremost the priority of protecting public health and environment. And so that's my bias. That's where I I sit down at the table. And there are other people who are sitting at that table, and I think this is appropriate, who are thinking more about the cost to industry and making sure that that is um, reasonable and ultimately doesn't increase consumer energy prices or lead to job loss in an important industry to Colorado. And so I appreciate that too. When you're crafting regulations or involved in policy decisions like that, you have to come at it with some degree of pragmatism, that long-term success in improving environmental quality, air quality, and addressing climate change depends on a somewhat pragmatic approach, because if it's politically unpalatable, it's not going to last. If it's too expensive, it's it's not going to get passed in the first place. And if it's not possible to administer, then it's not going to be helpful. Pragmatic decisions and big picture framing have improved our air quality over the years. Yet there is still work to be done, especially with communities most at risk. In January 2021, the White House issued an executive order directing the federal government to prioritize protecting and investing in overburdened and underserved communities. Later that same summer, Colorado also passed the Environmental Justice Act. This legislation established the definition of a disproportionately impacted community, required the Air Quality Control Commission to reimagine their community engagement, and set up a task force to develop recommendations. You know, my mother was a social worker, and I understand that programs in the government are meant to help people get ahead. And you shouldn't be ashamed of leveraging resources that are made available for you to try to break generational harm that is directly related to the racist legacy of the United States. This is Ian Tafoya. You may remember him from episode two. Ian was a co-chair of the Colorado Environmental Justice Action Task Force. He's a strong advocate for ensuring community voices are heard, particularly those who have not had influence on decision-making in the past. And he looks at today's challenges through both a historic and holistic lens. The original intent of zoning was all about protecting people and having a separate place for industrial and having a separate place for housing and having a separate place for commercial. It's not just that traffic congestion or an industrial site exist. It's also about who lives next to the busy roads and pollution, who has access to green spaces, who can afford to move. The legacy of it is that we had zoned industrial places We didn't have the scientific knowledge that we have now, nor did we have policies in place, and particularly, I think, the federal government to protect us. We don't use the precautionary principle, and we certainly have come a long way, I think, in my lifetime, but from when I'm a student of history, where we were, about what the impacts of pollution could be and trying to understand what happens when you place a facility in a neighborhood. But it continues. It absolutely continues. 
And because of choices made by council members 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, you're seeing housing that was put up to the fence line of these toxic facilities. And there are a lot of people who say, well, business has been there for 100 years. People are choosing to move there. It's really challenging when you talk about socioeconomic status and the barriers that people face. And then you're in a housing crisis. Where are you going to take your housing? There are some in those communities who say, maybe it's cheaper to relocate everybody. Does relocating destroy community and fabrics of community that people have lived in for a very long time? 100% it does. We saw that happen when they relocated people out of my neighborhood for the highway. I saw some people who are running for office have like press conferences like underneath a viaduct saying, we're going to put 80 homes right here. And it's like, well, we shouldn't put anybody. We should try our best to not put anyone with a thousand feet of a highway. We need to be thinking about how our zoning code interfaces with public health. How is this going to affect public health when I approve this? I don't think that's on the top of everyone's mind yet. The cumulative effects of different types of air toxics and pollution on people's health is an ever-advancing science, not to mention the difficulty in regulating them. Then there are also the effects of socioeconomic factors that add to the burden. The way our, our regulatory system is set up is this place has a permit, this place has a permit, this place has a permit, and there's a specific permit for this toxic and this toxic and this toxic. And when I say a permit, like it is an amount you're allowed to pollute. They are permits to pollute. They're not based in health. We now have had some success in pushing for health. And so what is the impact if you have five of these facilities around you? None of the permits take into account what the overall additive effect is and until we actually have monitoring in place on people's bodies at the fence line of the facility, at your home, it's really hard to understand um, how that's all moving around. And then you add on top of that weather. <laughs> you need complex science to really begin to understand it. But at the basis, it shouldn't be that complex to understand that small bits add up. The EPA released a research report at the end of 2022 examining the cumulative impacts and research needed to make decisions and take action about the long-standing disparities associated with air pollution. In the conclusion of their report, they called it a paradigm shift in how they think about human health and the environment. But it won't be an easy path forward. You don't have to see the end to get started. When you start on a hiking trail, you don't see the summit. You can maybe see it on a map. That's what our strategic plans are. But until you put foot in front of another, you're not going to know. And it's okay to make mistakes. Learn from them. Um, but let's get moving. It's easy for us to only see the world through our narrow lens of where we live today within history. That is just our human nature. But I encourage us to try to take in the bigger world our shared history, our successes, and our shortcomings. It's not the early 1900s anymore, where in some areas, coal dust was so thick that you walked around in dark clouds and every surface was covered in soot. Progress has happened, especially in the United States. But we are also seeing growing populations, greater economic advancement, higher standards of living, factors that increase pressure on our resources. And as science progresses, we're learning more about our public health 
and what is deemed safe. I've been trying to think of how to put this challenge into context, and I've been playing with the concept of the last mile, which is often referred to in the shipping or infrastructure or humanitarian worlds. You might have been able to build or solve for the majority of the system, but the last bit is the most challenging, often the most expensive, and the most complex and critical piece of the problem. We've had significant gains and improvements in our air pollution over the decades, yet we still have challenges. People are still prematurely dying from air pollution. And science is shining more light on how it's not just one thing that we have to pay attention to. It's the culmination of things. But while we might be heading towards improving our air pollution, we still have the biggest challenge of our generation, climate change. In our next episode, we'll look at how the road to awareness can change behaviors that improve both our air and our climate. Laws of Notion is a production of the Institute for Science and Policy at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. To learn more, visit clearingtheair.org. I'm your host, Kristen Uhlenbrock. This episode was written by me and Meredith Sell, produced by Tricia Waddell, with support from Nicole Delaney. Fact-checking by Kate Long. Sound design by Seth Samuel, with tracks from Epidemic Sounds, and audio support by Jesse Boynton. For a full list of credits, check out the show notes. If you have learned something new, please rate, review, and share the podcast. Thank you for listening. See you next time.